Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to the end of the week. And we have three things we're going to talk about. NVIDIA, of course, coca beans and relief in Japan. So in terms of the headlines here, NVIDIA broke the record for the biggest one-day market gain on Thursday this week. Do you know how much it added, Piers? What, market cap-wise? So additional market cap on just one session. It's a new record. I mean, was it like 100, 100, 100 and, 125 billion? Okay. Well, you, you're a little bit short. Mine. So I think Meta, just a few weeks ago on their earnings, did 180. Ah, uh, um, yes, so that's right. NVIDIA just put in a 277 billion one-day market cap gain. Uh, pretty insane. So we're going to unpack that and have a look at it. We're also, also going to talk about... Um, hedge fund traders and why they're going mad for coca beans at the moment. I did do a post on that and someone has left me a message saying, can you please explain what's going on? So we'll do our best. <laughs> and then, yeah, as I said, in Japan, the Nikkei 225 index has eclipsed record highs after just 34 years. <laughs> so it's been a while. Um, so there are a couple of things terminology wise We'll talk about things like deflation, speculation, futures, derivatives, trend-following strategies. Um, might even drop in some some chip clustering in AI. Uh, but don't worry. Uh, uh, I'm about as, as simpleton in that area as can be. So uh, I can explain it in, in terms that make sense to me, which hopefully would make sense to uh, my five-year-old. So I'll do my best. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, perhaps we could start with with NVIDIA. And uh, there was a massive sense of almost trepidation, it felt, at the beginning of the week. Social media was going absolutely bonkers yeah. about like the end of the world almost scenario, yeah. it felt like. But what was your take? Well, it's e- obviously biggest, easily biggest story of the week. It's, I mean, people have been, and when I say people, I mean, like respected voices in the industry, like analysts at big institutions have been, there's been sound bites, like actually the NVIDIA earnings report is the second most important piece of news behind US inflation data um, in terms of being something that can move global markets. Um, so it's like really, it's it's been hyped to the absolute max um, with some good reason, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of hype in it, obviously, but it's definitely the big story of the week. I had a friend of mine who WhatsApped me last week saying, what do you think, what do you think would happen if NVIDIA um, earnings bomb and they're way below expectations? Would it be Armageddon was the direct quote in, in that message. And I'm like, okay. Everyone just calm down. <laughs> firstly, firstly, they're not going to miss because they're just on apps that they're on fire and they are destroying all forecasts and they've continued to do so. Um, and number two, all right, if they had have missed expectations, I don't know. I guess people are worried that they're the poster child of this AI revolution, right? And so everybody has almost said, well, that's the perfect litmus test as to whether this is a step change for the global economy or not. But, you know, everyone's just getting hyped and a bit a bit oversensitive to it all. Yeah, I, I love the, the behavioral element of the NVIDIA build-up this week because it's just human nature to want to see the world burn. And it yep. was so overtly <laughs> doomsday scenario. Uh, and then, of course, the shares rose nearly 20% yeah. um, when when the information came out. I mean, to be honest, I mean, it is a it, that whole global, you know, globally important moment. I mean, the stats are that on Thursday, because the earnings were Wednesday night after the after the close on Wall Street. So these earnings reports, by the way, they always get released outside of market hours. Um, and all the kind of tech earnings are after the close. You get other companies reporting their earnings before the open. But anyway, just for, I guess, traditional reasons. I don't actually know why. But um, anyway, NVIDIA, Wednesday night. On Thursday, we had record highs set on, you know, big bellwether national stock indices across three different continents. So the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, smashed all-time highs on Thursday. The NASDAQ was up 3%. Obviously, a big component of that NASDAQ 100 index is NVIDIA. So when NVIDIA's share price rockets 16%, then obviously that's going to be a huge bonus for for the whole index, right? So NASDAQ up 3%, best day for about a year. S&P was up 2.1%, breaking last week's record high. Um, These stocks... Stocks Europe 600 broke a new all-time high. The FTSE All World Index broke to a new all-time high. And finally, and we're going to talk more about it, Japan 
made a 34-year record of, of breaking the previous high that was set on the 31st of December 1989. Uh, so it was true that NVIDIA's report did create this game changer across the planet, it would seem. Um, yeah. I mean, just to, to give a very quick glance at the numbers then, yeah. to give it some perspective, their sales in Q4 rose an incredible 265%. Their Q4 net income rose 770% at $12.3 smashing forecasts. I mean, surely, I mean, again, from an investor perspective, this is what I mean. Time horizon is always the big, the big, the big one, right? To determine your your view on what might happen next, because yeah, it almost feels like with that type of performance, then there's only so far it can go before then it has to kind of revert back to a more normal or <laughs> well, in the realm of normality. So. Yeah. In summary, are you kind of in that camp that Nvidia is the future? It will be dominant for uh, the foreseeable. However, it does need to come off the uh, the rocket at some point in the short I, term. I think AI is the future. I don't think Nvidia will enjoy such a dominant market position forever. So I do think that Nvidia are in this temporary moment in time where their their top line their revenue their sales growth rate is just insane and their bottom line profit growth rate is even more insane but we're about to hit a milestone basically this is the last earnings report where the comps the what we call the year on year comps right because this is what that growth 265% increase on revenue. What, what does that mean? So that means that in the same quarter the previous year, what was their revenue versus what it was in this quarter that's just finished. And that's where the 265% increase comes from. You're comparing it from the same period last year. Now, it was the same period last year that was the last quarter before the AI revolution began. And all of these massive tech companies like the Metas out there started hoovering up um, NVIDIA's, you know, key market leading product, which is their H100 chip. OK, and so these big tech firms started to get their checkbooks out. And that's where the NVIDIA revenue suddenly skyrocketed. Now, when we get into the next quarter, so in three months time, NVIDIA will report again their quarterly earnings, but the year on year comp will be much more challenging because they're now comparing to a period 12 months prior, which is when the frenzy had already started. So the growth rate is going to decline, okay? They're still growing, so don't get me wrong. It's not like this is, this is the peak revenue. It might be peak share price at some point in the next few weeks or, or or month or two, maybe we'll see a peak in the share price. If the growth rates slow, which they obviously inevitably will for the reasons I've just given. So, um, and look, there's other challenges we'll maybe dig into a bit, but it's like, yeah, they have a dominant position, but there are risks to that with other competitors. You know, some of their customers, 
It's so expensive. Well, here's a stat for you. Because in uh, when Meta, uh, Zuckerberg was on the conference call for Meta's earnings a few weeks back. Um, and that's when Meta's stock went through the roof and broke the record, right? But he said, one of the things he said was, in 2024, we will move our um, stock of H100 chips up to 350,000 chips. So by the end of this year, they will own 350,000 H100s. They're $40,000 a piece. So actually, that would mean that Meta alone will have spent $14 billion on NVIDIA H100 chips by the end of this year. That's just one client, right? But so you could argue, well, how many more chips are they going to need? They seem to have bought huge quantities already. That's number one risk. Number two, well, they're spending 14 billion. If a company's like the Googles of this world might be going, well, we'll just create our own because, you know, the cost here is so astronomical long term. We're better to trying to develop our own here. And obviously then that would be a negative from, um, and then there's China. You know, where are China in this chip race? And the US are trying to hold them back, but is that going to be a successful strategy? And so there is competition, right? So it could be that right now, NVIDIA, these growth rates are extraordinary and they won't last. There's then competition risk. And maybe these big tech firms have amassed enough of these chips or the rate at which they're buying them will slow. Hmm. So yeah, other warning signs, I guess, to look out for would be the unveiling of new models, any delay or disruption to that yeah. might well cause some serious um, waves. Well, the new ones, the B100. So that's the that's NVIDIA's next generation chip. They're looking to start shipping that later this year is the communication. Hmm. There's no date um, there's no date, a specific date that they've announced on that. But I guess for for their share price, right? So up sixteen percent. It's up. It's up another three percent today. It's just broken eight hundred dollars. Well, the the most amazing thing line that I like reading up on all of this stuff. The most incredible line I read was that this move in their stock since Wednesday night has now meant they've gone above Amazon and Google in the rankings, they are now the third biggest company on the planet uh, by market cap. They've broken the $2 trillion level today. And that puts only Apple and Microsoft as bigger companies. So the fact that NVIDIA is bigger than Google, that that kind of just blows my mind. And, and I start to think, well, hang on a minute. Is that mm. rational? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, everything you say, yeah, you know, I I agree with. I think yeah, with some of the you've talked about this before in an episode a while ago about how uh, you get this kind of first mover advantage, yeah, and then how that sparks then the necessity for competition to innovate, and so it's normally history has shown uh, a kind of window of time, and I think just to make sense of that for people. The reason why we're talking NVIDIA and they've been so good at this is most simply put in the retooling of graphics accelerators into other applications. And this is all about then them taking what was already existing and kind of retooling it to optimize it for vast volumes of data 
to improve computational processing, which is basically what these large language models use. One of the other things I saw was about, uh, again, a main advantage is devising this idea of cluster systems, which is, I guess, naively, if you're not used to this type of technology, you just think there's a chip, like you have a single chip in your phone or in your computer. But one of the ways to scale is to basically cluster, i.e. Um, you have multiple machines all connected to one another, creating this cluster effect and leveraging then everything all in one unit. Uh, and that's a significant enhancer performance, scalability, reliability compared to using a single machine. Uh, again, those risk factors. If you have a single machine, you're down, you're out. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you have a, a network like that. Uh, and then the, the other thing I saw was about a, a language they have called CUDA, C-U-D-A, uh, that yeah. they invented. And that's a language for its graphics chips. And that allows them to be programmed uh, for the type of work that underpins AI. So they've just been very well positioned, it would seem. Um, but yeah. For all the reasons you said, I think the, the biggest risk I see uh, is that fact that the other players you're talking about have such interest in being able to harness their own. Like AI is integral to all of the big tech's future. Yeah. So they cannot fail in that department and they cannot be hold ransom to a third party either. And then they have large quantities of capital to deploy into these types of adventures. So yeah, yeah, and big and big tech. They make up forty percent of Nvidia's revenue. So the big tech are like the you know the the the, the Metas and the, the Googles and the and the and the Amazons, right? So they make up forty percent. I guess Huang. So Jensen Huang, who's the 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 CEO, um, was on the call after the kind of numbers hit. And I, I guess one of the reasons. I mean, of course. You know, how does the market behave? Well, first up, what are the numbers? So looking at revenue and, and you know, the revenue in the quarter, as we said, was 265% up, but it was 22.1 billion, which was the key thing, I guess, is better than expected. What analysts had forecasted was that the revenue would be 20.4 billion, but it came in at 22.1. But then it's also about the, the forward-looking you know, it's hearing from the the head of this company themselves about forecasts for what their sales are going to be in the three months ahead. Okay, and the three months ahead, they're forecasting twenty four billion. Um, so from a that right there, that shows you the revenue growth rate is going to collapse because hmm. if they've gone twenty two point one billion and now they're expecting twenty four, I mean that's less than 10% growth quarter to quarter, right? So this this whole idea of triple digit revenue growth, that that's the end of that chapter here in this quarter. But Huang was, actually he put, he put, I mean, he's obviously, he's a good showman. And he was basically saying, demand is surging worldwide. And he's saying, you know, uh, as generative AI hits a tipping point, I'm, I'm quoting here, and he said, NVIDIA has enabled a whole new computing paradigm called generative AI. And he's quite kind of calling, he's calling his chips, they're basically the AI generation factories of the new industrial revolution. Wow. Uh, these are the sound bites coming out of the <laughs> conference call, uh, you know, really amping up the already overhyped 
um audience of course but um and look, his guidance going forwards yeah look that 24 billion for the quarter ahead was better than analysts were expecting so again that's why the share price gets a bump and i guess i guess the question is well the share price is 800 dollars and well is that expensive um and the question you can argue it both ways right there's loads of people out there going bubble 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 well and the metrics they're looking at, they're going, well, look, if you look at the last 12 months of earnings, profits, then their current share price is 100 times that. Okay, they've got a 100 times um, you know, previous 12 months PE ratio. That's that. That's 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 crazy. Um, to put it into context, that their own business for the last decade has averaged a PE multiple of 43 times. Bear in mind the S&P is that the whole index is like at 20 times, okay? But it's double the index on average for 10 years because they're tech and they're super high growth, okay? But they're even now double their 10-year, more than double their 10-year average, all right? And fine, their growth rates just accelerated crazily. But so there's people saying 100 times PE bubble, but then those that are still confident this isn't the top they're looking at forward looking what's the p ratio not based on the last 12 months that we know for sure and is banked they're like well what's the p ratio based on the forward looking 12 months and there it's about it's about 50 times okay so it's just above the 10 year average the the issue is that's all about forecasting for for that 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 P ratio is based on a guesswork. Well, it's not quite guesswork. Well, analysts would not like to hear me say guesswork, but with NVIDIA, it pretty much is. Trying to predict where their revenue goes is incredibly difficult. So there is a lot of risk towards that forward-looking prediction. So whether that 50 times multiple on that forward-looking view is justified or not. I mean, that's the ultimate debate. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about the, the sales strategy going forward. Uh, they talked a little bit about, you, you said about the concentration risk around having such a large revenue portion coming from such a small, narrow group of companies. But the problem is then if you start to diversify out, do smaller companies we're not talking small mum and pop shops here you know big companies but smaller than big tech do they have the firepower to invest on the same levels also uh, the nature of bespoke work is not conducive of scale and fast delivery it just they're not compatible really um so i guess then what you, you're kind of putting all your eggs in the new generation chips have to be significant limp improvements yeah to facilitate then a, a real step change in performance that big tech has to until they can develop their own so yeah yeah and big and big tech they're unique because those companies are disgustingly cash generative and have got yeah. billions of cash flowing out of every orifice so they've got money right most companies on the planet are nowhere near that. So yeah. if those big boys slow down on their, their spend, then that is a big risk for NVIDIA. But they were trying, you know, Huang was trying to paint the picture of, look, it's not just big tech. 
what we've seen in the last quarter is we've seen an increase in sales within the automotive sector, the financial mm. services sector, the health sector. And he was saying that now the spending in those sectors is reaching multi-billion dollar levels. It was also saying it's not just US, we've now got Japan, we've got Canada, we've got France really coming to the table. So he was trying to, like, like any front man here, he was trying to obviously tell all the right stories to allay any concerns for those investors out there who do think there's a huge concentration risk with regards to this, like revenue and revenue growth. Yeah, such a tricky position because you're right. One, it's so incredible what's happening. You have to talk such a wildly fantastic game now. Yeah. Otherwise, even your comments will sink the stock. <laughs> so it's like the bar's getting pushed higher by the market. The bar's getting pushed higher by the management team. Um, but look, let, let, let's move on and let's talk about Japan because you did mention that we saw a kind of a global response to this Nvidia um, stock price move that we saw. So, yeah. so why what's happened to Japan specifically? Well, it's a landmark moment is what happened because basically December the well, it was actually the last the final trading day of 1989. I imagine most people listening to this may not have even been born. Um, but the last, so the 29th of December, 1989, um, the market closed at 38,915. Okay, that's the Nikkei 225. Um, and that was the top of their bubble. So Japan, and, and to put that into context, in, in the kind of four years, it went from about 10,000 to nearly 40,000. So almost like 4X'd the index, that is. And that was the peak. Then what happened, and actually at that point, which is quite a, a great stat here, is that right there on that day, fifteen the big the biggest fifteen companies in that index um, were also in the top twenty of the biggest companies on the planet by market oh, yeah. cap. They they occupied fifteen of the top twenty, um, but it was a bubble, and then they had their financial. Japan had a financial crisis in the early nineties. The rest of the world kind of had a big financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. Japan had theirs already, okay? And it created, so the market went from 38 or 39,000 in 1989 and ultimately bottomed, there was like a big double bottom, one in 2004 and then in 2009, you know, below down below 10,000. So it, it properly, it dropped like 80 odd percent, okay, over that period. But Japan have been, they had a financial crisis, which they didn't deal with well. The West and the rest of the world learned a lot of lessons from that. When we were dealing with our crisis in 2008 and 2009, it was very much a, right, let's look at Japan as a case study and learn what not to do. They dealt with their financial crisis incredibly badly. And it really set in motion a, you would basically call it a three-decade period of depression in a way and what happened was they've been stuck in deflation and right so just explain yeah let's take take this from the from the beginning so first off what is deflation and then why is deflation bad so remember that economies it's about these developed economies it's about consumption right so about 75 percent of the economy gdp is consumption it's people spending, businesses spending, right? So for economy to grow, you need people and businesses to be spending more and more each year. Uh, that can happen by either 
the price is going up. So you're still buying the same number of things, but the price is increased. So the money of the transaction is increasing or you're but you are buying more as well right so you need to increase consumption right so consumption's the key now inflation is the measure of the speed at which the prices of goods change so if you have inflation prices are going up right and we've just had an inflation um, crisis over the last few years in most of the countries in the world here in the uk inflation went above 10 percent that means prices are 10% higher today than they were 12 months ago, okay? That's inflation. That's the normal mode of things. Deflation is when the, the, the number goes negative. So prices aren't going up, they're going down, all right? Now, you might immediately think from a consumption point of view, well, that's great. If prices are dropping, it's cheaper, right? Won't that encourage people to buy more? That's like maybe an immediate assumption. That's wrong. It's wrong because of human psychology and human behavior. Because if you're in a deflation um, environment and you as an individual expect the deflation environment to continue, that means you think prices will drop even further. So if you're a buyer, you're going, well, all right, prices have dropped, yeah, but if I wait, they're gonna drop even more. So it cannibalizes consumption. People consume less because they think the price will be cheaper later. And that, and that gets you into this, what we call a deflation trap, because what do businesses do that? Let's say you're selling pens, right? And your pen is $1 or one yen or whatever, right? Let's say it's 10 yen for a pen, but you've got your warehouse is piling up because you're not selling enough pens. So fine, you can do things like cut production, but that means, well, hang on, that means people get laid off. Some 10% some of your workforce are out of a job. They don't have any income anymore. So that damages consumption, right? But as your warehouse is filling up, you're like, well, we're going to have to shift some stock here. Let's cut prices. Let's have a sale, right? 10% off, guys. It's not it's not 10 yen anymore. It's 9 yen. But of course, that's, that's deflation, right? It, it's kind of you're cutting prices because consumption isn't strong because of deflation. But the price cut just sustains the deflation problem. And you get into this trap and consumption drops and it means your economy doesn't grow and it's a real nightmare to get out of it okay which is why western central banks are so you know hyper vigilant around inflation and it getting anywhere near the deflation kind of scenario so japan have been stuck in a deflation trap for 30 years and it meant their economies underperformed for that whole time, which has meant the companies in that environment have underperformed, which has meant that the bubble in 1989, we've only now just returned to those levels, even though the earnings of the companies in the index are now three times greater than they were in 1989. There's three times more money being made, except only now is the stock market returning to that price so so why is it returning to that price like what what's underpinning this resurgence you've had three decades you said of like yeah not a great deal of activity so what's kind of well it's quite it? interesting because when you live in the west we've been through a nightmare inflation crisis if you live in japan it's the best thing that could have ever happened <laughs> because it's kicked them out of their deflation trap they now have inflation 
and to the point where it's looking like it can be sustainable now because you're having things like minimum the minimum wage has now been increased by the government so that means well consumers have now have more money to spend great let's get out and spend more right so then consumption increases demand for goods goes up which increases prices and that's the virtuous cycle so it looks like that this deflation crisis for the world has actually been the app the, the kind of silver bullet that's finally killed off this deflation nightmare that japan have been in that along with a, a, a number of other factors right it's like the perfect storm the Nikkei 225 is up 17.5% this year, which makes it the best performing um, stock index for many of the large economies. Okay, 17.5%. And it's a bit of a perfect storm because there's a few things happening. Number one, it's that whole inflation story. But at the same time, we're really concerned about China. You know, China's situation is going the other way. There's a lot of economic risks. So a lot of foreign investment is coming out of China. So people are selling their Chinese stocks because they don't want exposure there anymore, but they might want APAC exposure still. So actually, this is proving beneficial for Japan. Money's coming out of China and into Japan. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is the yen mm. has actually been devaluing. So the yen's been getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So for foreign investors, obviously, if you want to buy Japanese stocks, you pay in yen. Their share prices are yen denominated, right? So if I'm paying in yen with my dollars, but the yen's devaluing, I'm basically getting the stock at a discount because my dollars are worth more as that yen is dropping, right? So again, the currency situation has also encouraged more international inflows. Um, and then there's some other stuff, you know, around, uh, well, the weak currency also benefits the exporters, right? So Japanese exporters, of which there are quite a lot there's, there's some really big ones in the Nikkei 225. Toyota might be a good example. All right. They really benefit from a, a weaker currency because if you're selling a car in America for $30,000, well, then you're repatriating that $30,000 back home. But you're getting more yen for your $30,000 because of the currency move, right? So it's almost like the, you, you're increasing the price of your goods, but 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 you're not. For the consumer so it's like the best case so look there's a few few catalysts all coming together which has meant that it's been an amazing run and it's gone from below thirty thousand to now yeah above thirty nine thousand just this year okay so look talk, talk, talking of records then uh we've got a few minutes left to run so so sticking with the theme yeah, there was also new records in both London and New York for coca beans per ton, <laughs> uh, and this was a an FT headline, and it was a bit more sensational than that because it was talking about how hedge funds speculation within the coca market was basically had now amassed an eight point seven billion dollar bet that essentially prices in the coca market are going to continue to go higher. So. I guess first, it's probably best to explain that why are cocoa prices going up first? And then we can talk yeah. a little bit about what is it that these hedge fund traders are trading and what is their intent, i.e. being speculation against the delivery of these physical goods. So firstly, there's key fundamental reasons why the price is rising. So the price of anything, we look at supply and demand. 
So how much of their how much of the stuff is there versus how much how many people want to buy it, right? And if that supply demand balance, if if something affects it on either the supply side or the demand side, then it can have a really sharp influence on the price. Now, when we look at the supply side, if the supply drops for whatever reason, then there's less supply versus demand. That drives the price up. That's what we've got here. There's been a, there is an expected future supply drop. That's because the biggest region in the world for harvesting of cocoa is Western Africa. And in Western Africa, they've had really bad weather, which is going to impact the crop. There's also a double whammy because these cocoa trees, there's this, there's a disease that's afflicting the cocoa tree. So you've got really bad weather and disease, which is means that, that the amount of cocoa you're going to get pulled off these trees in this harvest season is going to be dramatically lower than normal. That's why prices are going up. So is this when you get more quantitative kind of hedge funds who look at large data sets and kind of see these particular trends, signals are going off because they're, they're, they're probably looking at pretty deep data sets about on the production side and demand side. Yeah. And then what you start to, is it a case of it starts to compound because then once you see these trend following strategies kick in other people see that happening and then they jump in and then yeah. you get a bit of a freight train the runaway situation yeah it's called a bandwagon <laughs> um you know you so you've got speculators okay so obviously those fundamentals make sense now hedge funds they're looking to try and make a quick buck where's the fast money right? And they're looking for any market anywhere in the world. They don't care about cocoa. They couldn't care less about the actual product. They don't use it. They don't need it. It's just about the price of that commodity and how do they expect it to change. They're looking at the crop report and they're like, supply is going to get hammered here. Let's buy cocoa or let's buy a derivative product of cocoa beans. Let's buy cocoa futures because we want, as a hedge fund, to profit from the price going up, right? But as you say, what drives the price up? Buyers. If you get a load of buyers, see, demand, you now think about the demand side for these financial assets, and the demand increases because of the fundamentals, and that means the price is starting to go up, right? Then, as you say, you're starting to get, you know, these, these hedge funds are very sophisticated. There's tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of financial assets on this planet. And they're running models, monitoring all of these tens and tens and tens of thousands of products all at the same time. And whenever there's a trigger, bang, okay, we're in. Okay, they don't care what, it, what, what the asset is. So you're now starting to get these triggers. Hang on a minute, cocoa beans are on an uptrend, let's buy. That just fuels the uptrend, which triggers other models and they buy. And all of a sudden you're getting this buying and you're buying and you're buying and all of a sudden you get this big move. And actually it, the, the, the price goes up and is exacerbated by basically a, what we call a liquidity issue in the market where there aren't enough sellers. 
Because if you want to buy, you need someone who's selling, right? But if there aren't enough sellers to satisfy that buy side demand, well, then this is where you get a bit of dislocation and the price really starts to gap higher. Mm. And so there's a lot of market microstructure factors involved here, which helps to explain why the price has gone so high. The fundamental reasons at the core, the poor crop, makes sense, but the price reaction is probably over and above what those fundamentals might suggest for those reasons. Okay, makes sense. So it's not the hedge funds that are causing the move. Is the hedge funds taking advantage of the move? Mm, uh, I'd say the move begins for the fundamental reasons, yeah. but then there's so many hedge funds buying mm. that they really take over and they are then the catalyst yeah. for the price moving up. Yeah. And one of the final points there is that, again, another reason why it appears that the hedge funds are so confident to amass such a large size bet is this uh, locally, the Ghanaian and Ivory, uh, Ivory Coast farmers, they're subject to pretty strict enforced government agency rules on capping of the price of coca, which means then that from the producer on the right. ground... They don't make any upside on this price appreciation while people speculating, making a lot of money, make all of the money, meaning then that that what fundamentally drives price in any commodity you said supply and demand, that equilibrium cannot be agile enough because there is no more extra money to reinvest into the farming communities where these resources come from. So yeah, yeah. you can see why they're so so bullish. All right. Well, look, we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you very much um, for your time at the end of the week, Piers, and wish everyone a great weekend. Have a good weekend. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.